Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 432. I think it's natural at times that you're going to question yourself or you're going to second guess yourself. Uh, but I think ultimately at the end of the day, you need to have uh, confidence and you, ne- you need to have faith within yourself that uh, there is something that got you to that point already. Um, and, and really just believing in yourself and your instincts and your judgment and making those decisions to kind of push through. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Payroll and benefits are hard, especially when you're a small business. Gusto is making payroll benefits and HR easy for modern small businesses. You no longer have to be a big company to get great technology, great benefits, and great service to take care of your team. To help support Restaurant Unstoppable, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited time deal. Sign up today and you'll get three months free once you run your first payroll just go to gusto.com slash unstoppable payroll and benefits are hard especially when you're a small business gusto is making payroll benefits and hr easy for modern small businesses you no longer have to be a big company to get great technology great benefits and great service to take care of your team. To help support Restaurant Unstoppable, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited time deal. Sign up today and you'll get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash unstoppable. So with excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Chef Brian Pekarsik. Chef, my man, are you feeling unstoppable today? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure about unstoppable, <laughs> but I'm, I'm still standing and swinging. Right. So we'll, we'll take it. I think that counts for something, we'll right? We'll take it. <laughs> Raised in Pittsburgh, Brian Pekarsik graduated John Carroll University in 1999. Pekarsik then moved to California to fine-tune his craft while working in some of the most well-known kitchens at the time in 2007 he moved back to pa and would team up with rick stern in 2009 to start smp restaurant group today smp restaurant group consists of spoon five brgr locations and willow obviously we're just scraping the surface uh, there's so much more to your story than what i just shared uh, but let's get that motivational inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra what do you got for us boy a success quote or <laughs> mantra uh i guess really I, I tell people to cook with their heart and soul keep their head down uh their ears and eyes open and mouth shut and uh, they'll go far so why cook with your heart and soul um i think ultimately uh people can uh it, it's really palpable i think when you put all of your heart and soul into anything uh, it, it reflects, and I think people, f- they see that, they feel it, uh, they taste it. Uh, so I, I really want people kind of walking away from the restaurants talking about uh, just how much they enjoyed a dish or their flavors or uh, what it was paired with. And I, I don't necessarily want them walking away kind of scratching their head wondering what it was that they had eaten. Um, so I, I really feel as if, if, if people are kind of pouring their heart and soul into what they do, then... Uh, 
they, they, they can't be stopped. Awesome. Uh, so where did it all start for you? Uh, at what point did you know, um, I guess, you would be working in this industry for your life? Well, boy, uh, it's a, 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 I don't know if I really have a quick answer. Good thing this, this podcast is an hour long. <laughs> yeah. um, I'll try to keep it short and sweet. But for me, I, I don't think there really was that uh, exact kind of okay. eureka moment when, or aha moment, some people say. I, uh, you know, I, I kind of went to college. I was your typical 18, 19-year-old kid with, with not really knowing what I wanted to do as a career. You were um, studying business, right? I was business. studying business. That was one of uh, five different degrees <laughs> that I had declared through college, but I was really sports-focused and oriented. Oh, I, had, right. I had played yep. baseball and football in high school, um, and I had the opportunity to play baseball in college, mm-hmm. um, and that was a big reason why I went to John Carroll. Uh, so my sophomore year, the summer of my sophomore year, I, I got hurt. I blew up my ankle, Ugh. goofing all around with my buddies playing basketball, and it put me out that entire summer. So when I came in uh, my junior year, it, I, I really w- I came in at the wayside. Mm. And um, once I realized I didn't make that spring trip um, for, sp- you know, for spring uh, training, I, I, I kind of saw the writing on the wall and I just realized it was time to hang up those spikes and, and, and glove. What position were you? I'm guessing second base. Second or base. Yeah, yeah. Middle infield. <laughs> yeah. Good guess. Um, and my excuse, hands, right? my excuse for uh, not having a job through college was because I was taking a full load and you know I had baseball. So once baseball was out of the equation, my parents kind of said, now it's time for you to start pulling your own weight and, mm-hmm. and, and, and earning some money. So okay. some buddies of mine uh, worked at a, a kind of an Italian bar restaurant right off campus. Uh, and that was kind of my segue into the restaurant business. So okay. I think the dynamic of working uh, in a kitchen was very similar to uh, being in a locker room. So the dynamic and the camaraderie was very similar. So I think it was it, it kind of filled a natural void in my life. Um, and that's what I really initially took to was uh, really loving the dynamic of the restaurant business and, and uh, kind of the relationships you had and, and kind of that team-oriented concept mm-hmm. of working together and trying to get ready for service and then make it through service and then you know everyone kind of coming together and hanging out at the end of the night and stuff so that's i think that's what really led me into the to the business so you were working in the restaurant industry at this italian place uh while you're in college yeah dave the owner would kill me if i didn't give a shout out to pizzazz restaurant in cleveland (laughs) ohio but dave uh specia was the one who really uh kind of started me in the career and and still to this day one of my biggest mentors but okay and good friend um but yeah, it was a kind of a, a family, privately owned pizza Italian restaurant bar restaurant right mm-hmm. off right right off campus. So one of my missions with this podcast is as we're coming across these mentors, as we're like hitting spots in your life, I want to draw lessons from those mentors. So what did Dave teach you? Oh gosh, uh, I think the, the the biggest thing is is really treating your employees well mm-hmm. and and making them feel valued. Um, and, and still to this day, he has employees that have worked with him. 30 plus years. Oh, wow. And uh, that's, in that's today's world, that's in a pizza and, place and in the restaurant yeah. business. Was I mean, it a pizza or like a full service Italian? Full, full service Italian, okay, but they were yeah. really known for their pizza. Okay. Um, and to me, that that kind of was uh, even more so than learning about food or the restaurant business in general it was really uh, kind of seeing how he treated his employees and how they kind of would 
you know, run through walls for him. Mm. And, you know, really the proof's in the pudding. He, he still has so many employees that have, have worked with him for decades. Why do you so. think you had such commitment uh, from his employees? What do you think it was about him? I just think it, it was really, it's just really the type of person he is. You know, yeah. he's a, he's a people person and he, he really cares about people and he wants to see them successful. And I think part of, uh, something that really makes him tick is seeing people go on mm. uh, from from pizzazz and kind of make a career and mm-hmm. uh, people who have grown up into the business and you know a, a good buddy of mine who I worked with and kind of started our careers together Jason Vincent uh, who's a who's a really well known established chef uh, in Chicago um, you know he and I kind of went through the ranks together and. So this is 95, 96, 97 you're working? Yeah, I graduated, I graduated okay. John Carroll in 97, and then I, I moved out. I decided, like I guess every other uh, college graduate trying to figure out what to do, mm-hmm. uh, thought I'd move out to California okay. and uh, had my sights set on the West Coast. So at this point, were you chasing your career? Looking, A lot of people move out West because that's where, at this time in particular, where a lot of things were emerging on the food scene, and they wanted to surround themselves. Yeah, no, it was really best. more I just wanted to have some fun in the sun. Okay. Um, I appreciate the honesty. <laughs> yeah, and it was, but but it certainly didn't hurt to yeah. go to California. Yeah. Um, and it was right about that time, my senior year in college, was when it really kind of started to tick for me, and I really started to enjoy cooking. Mm. Um and really started to find it rewarding and feeding people and having the, uh, you know, making people happy kind of through food. So okay, it was around that time that I really started to kind of fall in love with cooking itself. Um, so when I moved out to California, I knew that I at least wanted to focus on cooking. I didn't, I didn't at that point really know what was going to come of it. Um, but I knew, you know, I had my sights set on California and I knew I wanted to cook. So if you could pinpoint one aspect of the one benefit from cooking that you liked the most which one of those things would, would it be i guess it was it would, it would really be kind of creating something with your hands mm-hmm. um and and having that uh reward of pleasing people yeah. or them yeah. wanting to you know ask who made it or meet the person who made it yeah. um so it was really in my family. I think growing up, that was a big part of our family dynamic was sitting down at the dinner table, breaking bread together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and even, you know, in a larger family and holidays and it really just kind of being focused around yeah. the food and the dinner table. So it was it was kind of near and dear to my heart. <laughs> there are a so. few things that are, are that feel as good as pleasing people with your food. I just, yeah. Something about it. I totally, I'm totally picking up what you're putting down. Okay. So you move out West. Uh, did you just get a job in kitchens or did, well, I don't want to make assumptions. What was your first job in a kitchen? Uh, it, it's kind of roundabout. Um, so I had decided to move out when I decided to move out West um, and not really knowing where I was going or what I was going to be doing. Uh, I decided to do a year long volunteer program called the Jesuit volunteer Corps. John Carroll was a Jesuit private Jesuit university. Uh, so this was a volunteer program, very similar to AmeriCorps, um, and I decided to do that. Okay. And I kind of managed the food kitchen uh, during the day. Okay. And then I had a, a second job at night working at the Sacramento Capital Club, which okay. was a private club, uh, and just started cooking there. And that was really just kind of a way that year I spent doing that was just kind of to kind of kind of settle down, get established, um, and really try to figure out what I wanted to do from that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't until, and that was in Sacramento, California. Okay. Uh, that was from 98 uh, to 99. And uh, I'm sorry, 97 to 98. Okay. And then 
after that year, it was then I knew I, I had gotten a good idea. I traveled a lot in California, and I knew I wanted to move to San Diego. Okay. So from that point, it was kind of a quest or a mission to try to find the best restaurant that San Diego had to offer at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really just kind of went around and knocking on. It's kind of cliche, but I, I, I literally went around knocking on the back door restaurants, mm-hmm. and I, I kind of picked uh, two or three that had the most notoriety mm-hmm. um, and, and was kind of the talk of the town at the time. So why the um, best? Why, why not just get any job? Why do you want to work for the best? I think that's just kind of how I was raised and, and I, maybe a lot had to do with kind of being in the uh, growing up in sports and being so sports focused as you always want to kind of be the best be the and best win the championship right. yeah. kind of thing yeah. or be a part of the best team that you could be. So when I knew I wanted to kind of take the career serious, um, that seemed like the logical place to start. So at was, this point, I was going to find the best restaurant that I could get into. So at this point, you're committed to learning the industry. At that, at that time, I was all in. And I knew I was going to take it as a career moving out to California. Okay. Because, um, like I said, it was my whole junior year that I started to cook. And then up in, you know, in the beginning of my senior year is kind of when I really started to fall in love with cooking itself mm-hmm. as, as, a, as a trade and profession. Yeah. So... So I want to make sure we, we leave time to talk about your own business, S&P Restaurant Group. But if you could pick like three or two restaurants that you worked at on the West Coast, that or if you have to go to four or whatever, uh, which which ones were the most impactful to you? Which ones helped mold you the most? You know what? It's a good. That's a great question. But I was really fortunate that it was it was really kind of a chronological order of restaurants, and I think um, one restaurant allowed and, and can kind of provided a springboard into the next. So as I kind of had established myself um, and grew, I either moved to a. Uh, a better, more well-known restaurant, or I moved into a higher position. So that was my my upward career track and was something very important to me. So I was very strategic in the restaurants I went to or the position I was taking. And some of those positions were a step back, uh, maybe position-wise, but it was in a better restaurant. Mm. Um, So I really kind of, when I moved to San Diego, I started at a restaurant called Mille Fleur. uh, And what's interesting was the chef um, and owner, Martin Wosley, uh, who's still there to this day, was uh, Wolfgang Puck's sous chef he brought with him from Germany when he opened up Spago. Okay. So Martin was, at the time, Europe's youngest master chef to go through the master chef program. Okay. And he was someone that really kind of first taught me that farm-to-table movement. So keep in mind, this was in the late 90s. Okay. Um, kind of when I think California cuisine was just kind of really getting established and known through Alice Waters and Jeremiah Tower. Um and it kind of that was my year of cooking school, so to speak, because um, Martin would would change the menu every day. We had uh, one of the country's best organic farms right in our back doorstep, Chino Farms. So we were literally down at the farm every day, picking up the produce, um, having our interaction with the farmers, um, kind of processing uh, every sort of protein you could ever imagine. And you know, this was coming from a, a very small Italian restaurant that was pizzas and pastas into my first experience of, of, of really uh, learning to cook from the land and, and utilizing what's in season and what's coming in on your back doorstep. Okay. So that was my you know year and a half or so of culinary school. And from there, the same owner, uh, Bertrand, opened up a second restaurant in San Diego called Bertrand at Mr. A's. Okay. And uh, I had the opportunity there to uh, have my first uh, sous chef position. Awesome. So it was my kind of segue into management. Um, 
I don't think you know the food wasn't as to the caliber of Mill Fleurs. It was a, a, a little bit more casual. Um, but from there, I, I was uh, you know able to get some management experience, and I was able to meet a couple chefs who then were uh, you know later on very influential in my career. Um, and they had it's kind of it's roundabout, but they uh, worked for Bradley Odgen. Um Todd Davies was a chef, and Carl Schroeder was the executive sous chef, and I, I was the you know the 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 sous chef of that of Bertrand's okay and Todd worked uh for Bradley Odgen and and at Lark Creek at the Lark Creek Inn in San Francisco and that was my introduction to Bradley Odgen who would then later hire me as my first executive chef position back to San Diego but in between then I had the opportunity to move up to San Francisco and help open up restaurant Gary Danko um and this was in the uh late 90s early 2000 okay let's let's tap the brakes I want to go deeper um so, from Martin, uh, Martin Wolsey. Wolsey, thank yep. you. Uh, Very German. Yeah. Uh, you learned about basically food um, values. You learned your food values of, of sourcing locally and all that, right? That was a big lesson for him. Is that safe to oh, say? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And then moving on to Mr. A's, uh, who there was your, your biggest influence? Probably Carl Schroeder, the executive sous chef. Okay. Um, he and I became really close. Um, and then when I moved up to San Francisco, Carl opened up uh, our terror restaurant, which was Bradley Odgen's restaurant in San Diego. Okay. Um, so what did he teach you about management? You said that's where you first got your, your, your first taste of management. And what did you learn? Where were you when you took that role and where were you when you finished it? It was, you know, I was kind of, boy, I was maybe 23, okay. 24 at the time. Um, and it, that was kind of one of those jobs when you look back and it was uh, at the time, I felt the world was being piled on my shoulders. Um, it was my first sous chef job, and a lot of the expectations and hours that you put in as a entry level sous chef, it's kind of one of those moments going into it. You you really don't even know what you don't know at that time. Mm. And what so didn't it you was, know at it that was time? just just the <laughs> amount of hours and hard work, just yeah. the sheer hard work it took, and what it really meant to work seventy, eighty hours in a week. Mm. I mean, you know, you just you were you were being killed with with mm-hmm. the workload and re- that was kind of an eye-opening experience to to really understand what it took at that time um you know this is almost 20 years ago and i think that that working dynamic has changed a lot since then but it was really uh, understanding what the expectation mm-hmm. was as a sous chef um so it, it it wasn't so much about the food that i learned at mr a's but it was really kind of the expectations and and the work ethic and how to manage your time and the workload. That is really kind of what so, so that experience taught give me. Give me a nugget about how to manage your time, how to manage your workload. If you can share something with multitask, you know, you come into the day and you know, the day doesn't start when you walk through the kitchen door. It mm-hmm. kind of really starts when you're getting ready in the morning mm-hmm. and kind of processing the day and understanding and knowing from the night before what you need to do and kind of laying out those projects that you know are going to take much longer and are getting you, those started first and then are you just laying this out in your head or are you doing yeah no it, i mean you first lay it out in your head and then when you get into the kitchen you're kind of writing it down on paper mm-hmm. um it was also my first experience in putting together specials mm-hmm. um you know how to put together lunch specials and stuff so it was really kind of my first experience of, of, of needing to uh, juggle multiple balls in the air and making sure that you're getting it all done for the start of service. Okay, and, you know, cool. kind of chasing that 11:30 a.m. lunch time frame, and then that five o'clock dinner time frame. Okay, so uh, in 2001, you go to work with Gary uh, Danko, right? Correct. So, what do you, what's your role there? Uh, I was just the chef bar, chef de partie, which is kind of that European brigade. So, I was the chef de partie of the meat and game station. Okay. Um, so you kind of micromanage that station. 
um, and you have uh, commies and, 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 and different, you have a brigade underneath you that you're also managing. Um, but that was really uh, my first experience working at a, a, a kitchen at that level. Our okay. first year, we won the James Beard Best New Restaurant. Okay. Uh, we were awarded the Mobile Five Stars. Um, so it was a uh, first time really working in a restaurant at that caliber okay. of a, of a five star level. Or, so this is the example of you taking a job, not necessarily to move up, but it's a, more of a, a lateral move. Uh, well, it was in, actually a, a, a step a, back in uh, kind of where I was at as far as the position in yeah, the kitchen, going but, from a sous chef to a chef de partie <laughs> is a step back, but it was a major step forward in working in a, a restaurant of that caliber, yeah. working for a, a kind of a nationally acclaimed chef like Gary Dane. So why were you willing to take a, a step back? Uh, because it was a it was a great opportunity. I knew it was going to be something big. Um, I knew the reputation Gary had um, within the Bay Area and even nationally. Um, so it was really it was a, it was a great opportunity for me, and yeah. it was a chance to move up to San Francisco. Which at the time I was ready to move on from San Diego. So you took a pay cut. Um, oh yeah, I took a, a major pay cut, and it was tough. It was tough making the ends. Uh, living in the Bay. So anybody who listens to this podcast knows why I'm asking these questions. And it's a, something that I, I say all the time. I think it was Albert Einstein that said, don't become a person of success, become a person of value. And, and take jobs based off the lessons you're going to learn, the people you're going to surround yourself with, because that will get you further in the long run. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I, we, my, my wife and I at the time, uh, my wife now, but you know, she and I were just dating at the time, yeah. and, and, and she was a social worker. So we would kind of we now laugh and joke that probably the two lowest paying jobs out there with the, uh, a, a cook <laughs> and a social worker living in the city of San Francisco yeah. in the early 2000s trying to make it work. It yeah. was it didn't come without its struggles. But how'd you make it work? It was really the best time of my life. Um, I love that. Why was it the best time of your life? Even even it, given the situation, your financial it, situation, why was it the best it, time? Of your it life? really wasn't anything kind of tangible. Mm. Um, it was just kind of you know that time in your life when you know the the stars so to speak were all aligned mm. um uh, we were just happy you know we were in our mid-20s uh living in san francisco uh we just loved the city we loved everything about it um i was in a great job uh even though we weren't uh we didn't have two pennies rubbed together um and when you ask how i how i made it work it was uh Largely based on credit cards. So it took us a lot of years to dig ourselves yeah. out of that credit card yeah. hole that we put ourselves in in those few few years we were in San Francisco. Awesome. So, okay, 2001 was when we, you were with Gary Danko. Before we move on to the 2004, the next stage in your career, uh, give me a nugget uh, that you learned working for this restaurant, something that we that, like, something that made you a better chef. It, it, it was the... Um, the lesson of really kind of pushing yourself to be the absolute best uh, cook that you could be. Um, the standards were so high. Um, and, and really seeing Gary, uh, the owner, and him being on his hands and knees washing floors, uh, scrubbing out toilets, washing bath, you know, washing the bathrooms, and really seeing what it took to be a chef owner and really to uh, be successful. And it wasn't any job that was beneath him. Uh, he's the one who really set the standard, and he made sure that everybody kind of lived up to that standard. Beautiful. And the, and the guys in the kitchen, uh, you know, with that opening crew, they have all gone on to their own amazing careers. Um, all chefs or chef owners at this point in time, mm -hmm. and uh, it was a really unique experience working with such a high level of cooks in the kitchen. And uh, we were all really close friends. Um, 
but we also pushed each other. And if you didn't have it that day or you didn't have it within yourself to get the most out of yourself, you had the people surrounding you pushing you. Mm. Um, so it. It, it, it was a really, really healthy work environment. Um, but it was an amazing learning experience at the time. So great, Chef. So okay, uh, three years with with Gary, Chef Gary, uh, and then in two thousand four, you go to Artera. Am I saying that correctly? Correct. So that was the Bradley Ogden owned restaurant mm-hmm. that Carl Schroeder, who was the executive uh, the executive opening executive chef at the time, he knew he was going to be moving on to open his own restaurant, uh, which is called Market in Del Mar, California. Okay. Um, I, I believe your cousin has eaten there. Um, my but, cousin? Yeah, Roddy. Is Roddy your oh, cousin? Oh, Roddy Gibbs. Yeah. Oh, by the way, he's not my cousin. He's oh, just, okay. He's somebody who discovered the podcast, and I I should take this moment. I've already thanked him once, but I'm so grateful. He, he's introduced me to so many people. He introduced me to you. Thank you, Roddy Gibbs. Roddy says hello, by the way. <laughs> and uh, he's given me a spot to crash while I'm in town, and oh, cool. he's the reason why I'm in Pittsburgh. Okay, so, awesome. Uh, very grateful for, for uh, Roddy. He's been amazing. So yeah. Carl was the opening chef for Artera mm-hmm. restaurant in, back in San Diego, and when Carl knew he was moving on, he reached out to me and said hey do you want to come down and take over my position um i'm probably on like a six month to year time frame but uh brad's going to want to get somebody in get them trained to kind of continue on with uh what their vision uh was in the style of food and the style of cooking just so when carl did move on that the transition was pretty seamless so it was in 2004 that i decided to move move back down to san diego okay uh, anything significant at this point in your career that's worth drawing attention to? Any lessons? Not, to draw nothing from? professionally. Um, oh, well, no, I, I, I do. I do uh, have something. I it, it's something that I I don't really speak to much of, or that's not part of my resume, just because it was for such a short window. But Dave Specia, the owner of Pizzazz, at the time was opening up a second restaurant back in Cleveland, and I went back for about eight months uh, to help him open up that restaurant. Okay. So that was kind of a break between the uh, the, the craziness of uh, living out in San Francisco. I went back to Cleveland for about eight months, and then from there went back to San Diego to okay. to, to take over so the position at Artera. Any of these events or any of these uh, you know life events, uh, were you opening the restaurant? Was that your first opening? That, or? No, it was not my first opening, but it was my first opening in the position as an executive chef. Okay. So, so really being kind of learning uh, – how to put together order guides or schedules or cost sheets and, you know, really being ultimately held accountable for the labor and food mm. costs. So, what was that learning curve like? Uh, it was a long curve. I don't even <laughs> think I, I really truly understood it by the time I left because I knew that the opportunity in San Diego was was, was there. So this was kind of a, just a short uh, commitment that I had okay. given Dave to, to open up that restaurant. Okay, cool. So 2007, you decided to move back to Pittsburgh. What was going on in Pittsburgh? Why come back to Pittsburgh? Um, it was, I think it was more personally driven. Uh, my wife and I, or my, my, my girlfriend at the time, Jessica, um, we were together for you know, almost 10 years mm-hmm. and, and it was just kind of time. We had our second child mm. uh, at the, at the time. And I think she was tired of raising the kids by herself or at least our oldest son by herself. Yeah. And, she kind of said, I'm, I'm, I'm heading back east because she went to college in uh, D.C., high school and college in D.C. Okay. So it was kind of uh, her saying, I'm, I'm, I'm going back east with our kids, with or without you. So <laughs> I did come back kicking and screaming. It wasn't really my uh, decision yeah. to move back. I was really happy where I was at. Like looking um, back at it, though, uh, to move back to Pittsburgh in the 2000s. Uh, time like around 2007 uh if you have all that credit card debt 
Uh, I don't know if you're making, if you're chipping away at it at this point, but to move back from living in San Francisco and San Diego, like those expensive cities that come back to Pittsburgh at the time, it was really affordable to live here. Yeah, that was, that was nice. That was nice. Having two young kids, uh, you know, we were newly married. Mm -hmm. Um, We actually got married when, you know, we were, we were living out there. So being newly married and and moving back to Pittsburgh and being able to afford to buy a four bedroom house versus a you know, 800 square foot, two bedroom condo. That was twice the amount. Yeah. And um, with the resume that you've built for yourself, you could almost walk into any, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to make assumptions, but was it easier to kind of be at the top of the game in Pittsburgh versus out West? Yeah, there is something to, to be said about kind of the big fish, little pond. Mm-hmm. Um, but those, those three, almost four years working for Bradley Odgan as his executive chef in San Diego, those were some really, really grueling years. Mm. Um, I kind of joke about it now that it kind of probably took some years off my life. Yeah. But, you know, I was in my uh, late 20s, early 30s. Um, it was my first really, really high-profile executive chef position. Um, and, and the hours that I had put in were, were – it was crazy. I mean, mm. it really was. And uh, I, I don't think – I'm probably on a younger tier of those chefs who have been working and kind of cut their teeth yeah. through this pr- profession that have uh, put in those kind of hours. Cause I think in today's world and today's restaurant world, you just really don't see that much anymore. Yeah, maybe and, we- and, and it's not healthy. I mean, yeah. truth be told it. And, and that's kind of why I joke, uh, you know, it, it was grueling. Maybe we can uh, dive deeper into that when we get to more current time. I want to say chronologically just because I lose track if I don't. Um, so you come back 2007. Did you have a job lined up? Like, how did you get set up out here? I did. Uh, so Brad's restaurant, Artera, um, kind of the long, the short story of it was the Marriott was trying to make a run uh, with, I think, those kind of boutique restaurants and really trying to up their level of restaurants within the hotels. So what they did is they paired with a handful of celebrity chefs. Uh, Todd English being one, Michael Mina being uh, one, Bradley Ogden being the other. So our Terra restaurant was actually uh, inside the Del Mar Marriott. Okay. It ran independently of the hotel, and conceptually it ran independent, but it, uh, technically speaking, it, w- it was part of the Marriott Hotel. So it was through the Marriott that I had an opportunity to move back to Pittsburgh to become the executive chef of the Pittsburgh Marriott City Center. Yeah. Um, so that was the job to kind of, once I decided and I conceded in the moving back, uh, coming back, kicking and screaming, yeah. uh, at least that was a job that actually uh, helped in bringing me back to Pittsburgh. Okay. And any big, significant uh, aha moments or lessons from that experience working in this, maybe a little bit different than what you're used to? Yeah, very much so. Um, it, it really was because working with the Marriott with Bradley Ogden's restaurant, Artera, that, that's really all I knew of the Marriott. Mm-hmm. So coming back to Pittsburgh, it was much more of your run-of-the-mill type of uh, Marriott-run restaurant. And it, it, it wasn't what I had been doing. It wasn't the style of food or the style of kitchen that I, I, I wanted to be in. But they gave you um, free range of creative... Uh, y- y- yes and no. Okay. I mean, they, they do to a degree, but you know they still have their standards mm-hmm. and, and, and they have their Marriott specs that they want you to kind of conform to. What's that like cooking, not having complete c- creative freedom? It, it, it was definitely, um, it was definitely a, a challenging experience. Um, there was a lot of times when I just kind of had to bite my tongue and grin and bear it because, you know, I, I, I didn't want to lose my job either. Yeah. You know, I had two young kids to feed but it ultimately uh you know showed me that this isn't what i wanted mm-hmm. so i started to kind of look out in the pittsburgh market 
And that's when I uh, met Rick, my business partner. I was actually interviewing for this restaurant, Willow, okay. that we're sitting at now. Um, I interviewed for him, um, started cooking for him, and it was really kind of that decision that he said, let's open up a restaurant together. Okay, awesome. So that was kind of that uh, big moment of, of what I was kind of looking for. I want to go deeper here, but before we do, let's backpedal a little bit. You were talking about... Um how not having the creative freedom uh, wasn't necessarily what you wanted to do. A great, still a great opportunity. Uh, was there a, a, a low time at all during this process of having a great uh, job, but not necessarily being, uh, I guess, fulfilled? Yeah, I think, um, you know, and, and it's not to talk negatively about the Marriott mm-hmm. because they did provide me a lot, a lot of mm-hmm. opportunity and they and they were a big reason of why I, you know, I came back and mm-hmm. I had some great bosses that I, were, I was working for. But it, as far as being a young professional and, and at the time a relatively young chef that really uh, was working in uh, some incredible restaurants, very high profile restaurants. Um, and, and really wanting to create um, food that was new and different, uh, that opportunity didn't allow me to do so. Mm-hmm. So I think it really stagnated me with uh, the, that creative kind of uh, drive that I had. Um, so that's why, I, you know, ultimately kind of what set me uh, looking for another job. Okay, cool. So uh, talk to me about this dynamic with Rick Stern. So uh, you, you come here, you're executive chef at the Willow. Um, when did he approach you with an opportunity to partner? What did that? Well, it was actually, I, I never took over the executive chef okay, position okay. here at Willow. Um, it was interviewing for the position. Um, and basically we, we kind of joke about it, but he, he, he couldn't afford me. So, <laughs> um, but at, through the process, I did start cooking for him okay. um, and did, did a couple different tasting menus. And once he kind of tried my style of food, yeah. um, I think at the time was, was new and different to Pittsburgh. Um, and it, it was exciting for him. So that was kind of ultimately what led him to, to want to open a restaurant together. I think there's a really like big lesson in here in the sense that, uh, so when he, when you first interviewed, uh, with him, uh, he wanted you, but he couldn't have you, uh, as far as, uh, the cash he could pay you up front. So he offered you equity. Uh, is, um, is that kind of how it played out? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty okay. much. So, I mean, Dive into that and how you can build relationships. You can offer sweat equity, or you can use other assets to for leveraging power. Like, t- tell us the. the yeah, the I mean, it was it was interesting because so then once you know, I think before then we we kind of went through a period of time uh, to really kind of get to know one another mm. to make sure that we liked one another and that we thought that this could be a uh, a mutually beneficial working relationship. How and, much time did partnership? you need to do that? Uh, it took a few months. Okay. Um, us going out, having drinks together, going to dinner Dang. together. Yeah, yeah pretty, kind, nice. kind of <laughs> um, in, in a weird sense. Uh, but so there was that period of time and we just kind of took our time and looked for opportunities and looked for some, you know, uh, restaurants that were either closed or we knew that were going out of business. So that process took uh, the better part of a year. Yeah. So when you, you guys started taking each other out on dates, uh, what what was was there an objective? It was just to get to know each other. Was there? It was get. Was it was. It, it was twofold. It was to get to know each other personally yeah. because I think that's that's important in a good business relationship. Um, but it was also to really get on the same page and and understand each other's vision mm. of uh, of what we wanted this restaurant yes. to be. Yes. Um. So it's not like having in 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 the true and real dating world or having a significant other. Um. And you get to a point where. Uh, you feel comfortable enough that you can tell them, uh, you know, 
your 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 shirt looks ugly with the pants you're wearing, or that's a terrible idea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in a business relationship, you can't do that. You okay. have to be much more tactful. Okay. So the the process takes longer. Yeah. Um, so you know there was certainly some back and forth and give and takes, and until we kind of fine tuned the vision that we wanted this restaurant to be. Um, and I think at the time, uh, Pittsburgh. I guess to kind of rewind, re- you know, to, to reverse out of that a little bit, um, you know, at that time in uh, 2007, 2008, 2009, uh, there weren't a lot of restaurants in Pittsburgh that were uh, current or, or kind of pushing the envelope. Pittsburgh historically had been years behind the dining meat trends. Meat and potatoes. Uh, kind like, of a yeah. meat and potatoes town. Um, and... So what we wanted to do was kind of drawing from our experiences from bigger markets, uh, me bringing back of what I've learned out from the West Coast. Um, so it was something that was kind of new and exciting to Pittsburgh. And in that time frame, there was a handful of us chefs within a short amount of time from 2009, 2010, 2011, in that time frame uh, that all kind of had come back to Pittsburgh from bigger markets. Um, and we started opening restaurants around the same time. Uh, chefs like myself, uh, when we opened Spoon, you know, Kevin Sousa at the mm-hmm. time, shortly after, opened Salt of the Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, Keith Fuller uh, had opened up uh, Route 174, mm-hmm. Rick DeChance with Meat and Potatoes. Justin Severino with Cure. and You're making me feel really are- good about my Pittsburgh lineup right now because I have all them but DeChance. Uh, which is good, which means I'm on uh, the right track as far as the people to be paying attention to. Um, so, any lessons on partnership uh, that we should? I, mean, I think this this is a, a good area to spend some time, just because m- me personally, I believe that you you can't do the to the level w- at which we need to do restaurants today to be competitive. Uh, you need partnerships, or, or unless you're a freak, unless you're a freak of nature who, who's good at everything and can multitask and keep everything going in their head, which not many, m- most of us aren't like that. So, what were the dynamics of the partnership? Who who was responsible for what? How did you guys make sure uh, you you spelled out you know whose lane? I guess what lanes you fell in. Obviously, you're the food. God, yeah, I think I think in any you know this isn't just true in in the restaurant business, but I think in any good partnership, uh, each other or what you bring to the table really complements each other's weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Or you have a specific uh, task or or uh, thing that you can bring to the partnership that the other person doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. have. And for Rick and I, um, you know, r- restaurants was kind of a hobby for him. Um, you know, I think. Commercial real estate is is what his major portfolio is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and and I'm the operations guy. I'm the chef. So, it was really Rick's responsibility to find the lo- the location, um, get the financing, uh, get the place funded and opened, um, get it designed. Okay. you know that's something that he really likes to do. Okay, um, and of course I had my you know input on design and stuff yep. you know through the process, but. Then once the restaurant kind of opens, then I take things from there. Okay. Um, and I kind of run the day-to-day operations. You know, I hire the managers. Um, I kind of set the expectations and uphold them. Um, and, and I work with the, the culinary team and, and the chefs who are in place and kind of uh, fine-tuning the, the style of food that we want for that restaurant. Okay. So, so Willow was a flagship original restaurant you guys opened together. 
No, Willow was already open. So okay. Rick w- Rick had Willow for years. Okay. Um, and it was really the – this was a restaurant that I interviewed for in which I first met Rick. Mm-hmm. So Spoon was the first restaurant that we had opened up together. Okay, gotcha. That I, that I actually had ownership in. Okay. So what was, what was it like uh, moving from being an executive chef or a chef de cuisine uh, into a – a position where you're now uh, you have ownership in it and you're responsible for hiring, recruiting front of house, back of house, building teams. What was that like? Uh, that first experience of owning it, it, it was, it was amazing. It was completely overwhelming. Mm-hmm. I think there were major uh, periods of time that I, I questioned myself. I questioned if I knew what the hell I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I was new to it all. How'd you push through I, that? Feeling? I really felt, um, I felt young and I felt inexperienced mm. uh, in the bigger picture of things, um, but it was really just kind of your your sheer will and determination that kind of you know and the desire and drive to accomplish the goal that you had set out mm-hmm. that really pushed through all that fear or kind of pushed through those questions. So I think it's natural at times that you're going to question yourself or you're going to second guess yourself, uh, but I think ultimately at the end of the day you need to have. Uh, confidence and you ne- you need to have faith within yourself that uh, there is something that got you to that point already yeah um, and and really just believing in yourself and your instincts and your judgment yeah and making those decisions to kind of push through just keep showing up right yeah just keep plugging <laughs> keep away, away. Or, or, or keep swinging um so where you are today I know um, you're still very much involved with the the back of house the cooking uh, just when I when I was setting up you were you said you were breaking down you were butchering all right so but you you still I think you said five uh, burger locate or five burger locations spoon willow and um, I'm sorry what was the other one uh, uh, that's it that's it yep, okay yep. Um, how how are you in so many places at once what are what things did you do to uh, be able to, to juggle all these things well I think it's uh, really kind of surrounding yourself with as many strong managers as you can and I know that really sounds cliche and yeah. it's not something that's easy uh, to do and mm-hmm. it's not like I hit a home run every time I hire a manager mm-hmm. but through the years I've been able to retain a lot of great managers um, a Why? couple a oh. couple chefs I, and I really think a lot of those lessons uh, were taught to me from my, my first boss Dave um, and his retention of staff and understanding hey when you really have somebody that wants to grow and wants to learn and wants to develop uh, have them grow with you develop them with you mm. grow together because if you're not growing together you're, you're growing apart how do you grow together with somebody um, you know empower them uh, uh, trust trust their decisions trust on their ideas involve them in that creative process involve them in the decision process give them a sense of ownership um so you know, by- make them feel as though their decisions um really impact a restaurant and uh and if you trust in them and they and they know you trust in them then they're going to want to do good by you let's dive deeper into this con- this idea of empowering them and growing with them and what does that look like how do how do you empower somebody uh you, you know, just- I, I really think, you know, I let the managers, both front and back of the house, run the restaurants like it's their own. Mm. Um, so when there's there's issues or there's problems, they are empowered to make the decisions that they need to make for what's best for the restaurant. And if at the end of the day, I, I may not agree with their decisions, and we'll have a conversation about that, or we'll have a conversation of maybe what I would have done different, or the reasons why I may not agree. 
A lot of times I, I 100% agree, mm-hmm. but they are in the position to make those decisions. I'm not micromanaging them. They don't need the, they don't have the need to call me on every decision that they need to make. Um, so I think it gives them a, a, a type of a sense of ownership yeah. into, into the restaurants. Um, and, and I really think it empowers them. So at the end of the day, if I know and I can look into their eyes and I trust that they have the, the, the best interests of the restaurants in mind, then, then let them make those decisions, and there are going to be there. There are going to be times when they fail, and that's fine, and that's a learning experience for them and for myself as well. So, so what what about a circumstance where there's an issue where you know the solution, um, and they haven't quite figured out the solution yet because they may not be as seasoned as you? Do you let them get there? Do you do you kind oh, of yeah, like, absolutely? You know, if it, you, if the worst thing I think as a boss is to have those type of managers that you have to spoon feed the answers to daily so as young managers or people who are out there listening um who want to develop in the managers it's kind of when you when you have issues um and you do have questions or you're not sure yourself what is the right decision to make and you're going to go to your boss to ask come with the question come with some answers or come with some ideas don't just come with the question and look at them to make the decision for you Mm. have some insights um Show the maturity and the responsibility that you have been thinking about this and you've processed it and that you, you, you have some possible answers or resolutions to what the issues are. Beautiful. So we're already at like 45 minutes of recording time right about there. Uh, anything that you want to draw attention to, any area of a conversation you were hoping we would cover, anything that comes to mind that you can share with us to add more value in this moment? Um, yeah, I, I guess the big thing, and you know, from what I hear, it's kind of an issue nationwide, um, if not in our industry worldwide. But certainly in Pittsburgh, I'm, I'm feeling it because you know this is where I'm uh, I'm living and this is where I'm operating restaurants. Mm-hmm. Is we're certainly at a period of time when uh, 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 there's a lot of restaurants opening at a very uh, quick rate in mm-hmm. a short amount of time. So it, it's giving young professionals the opportunity to have their pick in restaurants they, that they want to work for. Very notable chefs, um, very uh, well-known restaurants or, or new restaurants doing great food. Um, so I think it's really lessened a standard in which a lot of young profes- professionals who are coming into this business don't necessarily need to learn um, that you know maybe an older generation or the generation before had to go through and that's the 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 age old um lesson of of not burning bridges yeah um and really uh going about and conducting yourself in the a professional uh ethical right way and it's you know when you move on to another job give a two-week notice Mm. um don't no call no show um and, and and really not burn those bridges because what you're seeing happen is what we're seeing happening is you know, a lot of younger professionals uh, may have a falling out uh, or they may be disgruntled and they, they up and leave a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And because there are so many new restaurants all looking for help, all fighting for a very small talent pool, is that uh, in back, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, if you burnt a bridge with a particular chef or restaurant, you were kind of, you know, you weren't hireable yeah. or yeah. anybody or any hiring manager with any sort of ethics yeah. or, or standard. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Wouldn't mm-hmm. wouldn't hire you. But in today's world, 
we're all fighting for such a small talent pool that as a hiring chef, and I'm guilty of this as well. I'm not saying I'm perfect by any means. And you're now starting to weigh those reasons why employee X left their last job. And they may have gone out in a bad way or they may have kind of stuck it to the chef or to the restaurant. Or maybe you know that chef is an asshole. Exactly. And and, and now you're starting to lower your own hiring standards because you're you're needing cooks or you're needing professionals. Yeah. So bad um, that you're you're now kind of turning a blind eye to these issues, mm-hmm. and it's kind of creating this culture and dynamic within a, a very young and new workforce of professionals coming into the business that is, is very dangerous and it's not healthy. Yeah, that, that's, those are all great points, and um, you know it's it's funny you mention that because I we we say there's a the hiring pool is getting smaller. I think that they act. I'm really interested that there was data behind this. I think the hiring pool actually is getting bigger, but not at the rate at which restaurants are opening. Yeah, are getting bigger. Exactly. So the hiring pools the same size, if not bigger. But there's so many people doing food at such a high level. Whereas in the '90s, in '80s, there were very the percentage of restaurants that were doing food that you know that we're doing today we're was really much. noteworthy. Exactly. Yeah, it's much lower to scale. So it's just like, um, what what do you think the solution is to that? Boy, you know what? If I if I had the crystal ball or the solution, I, I, I probably wouldn't be a chef in a restaurant business. I'd be making my fortune and consulting <laughs> these chefs and restaurant owners. Yeah. Um, I, I really don't. Um, but I, I do know at the end of the day, as long as you conduct yourself accordingly and, and you do what's right and you do things in the right way, then you know, you, you're going to be good. Yeah. You know, one thing I think we can do is to kind of, uh, go back to what it was like before the, the culinary schools. Like, well, how do people learn how to cook? It was all just apprenticeships and mentorships and uh, be willing to take people with the right attitude, with no experience and give them the skills. Is it harder? Fuck yeah, it's way harder. Yeah. But you know, at the same time, I, I feel like that's kind of a, our, everyone's responsibility in this world is to take young people and to give them the knowledge and skills to make it in life. And uh, we rely too much on the school systems today to do that when we should be doing it more hands-on. I think that's how we're, our, 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 our DNA is hardwired to, to work like in those right. types of relationships. Right. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? No, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I've, I see that all the time and you know, I don't know if it's uh, the culture of the food network or mm-hmm. I don't know if it's the information they're being taught in culinary schools, but you do see, like I never went to culinary school. I, I graduated college and, and you know, I think my time in restaurants was very much like a mentorship yeah. or an apprenticeship. That's good. Um, you know, and we're very much in a trade profession. Yeah. So it's kind of like, you learn from hands-on work and you, you get out what you put in. Yeah. So, you know, and, and that was at that point, that was really the decision why I decided not to go to culinary school because I was, I found myself training uh, graduates from culinary schools and I'm, I'm the one training them. And I, I felt that I knew more from just the practical world of working. So I think that was a, as, as I progressed through my career, that was an important uh, dynamic. I think that people really kind of took to was, Hey, look at Brian. Look where he's at. He didn't go to culinary school. You know where he's at was just a, 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 a result of hard work mm-hmm. um, and, and really trying to learn as much as you can. Mm. Uh, so I, I think that was a you know it's a good lesson for younger. <laughs> I got a, a good quick question for you, and it could be a yes or no answer because I realize you probably have to get ready for dinner service. I don't want to keep with you for too long, but if you went to college, do you think you could have done what you did and the way you did it to, to get to where you are today? If I went to culinary school, yeah, or- culinary school. Sorry. Um, boy, 
Yes, but I think it would have been a, a, a much different road that I would have taken. Yeah. I, f- I feel like I don't know if I, I recommend going to culinary school, honestly, because uh, it, it gets you out of college with so much liability and so much debt that you can't go learn like you should be learning. I, I don't think you need to. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I mean, I, I'm kind of somebody that hasn't, and, yeah. you know, that hasn't stopped my career. Yeah. You want that freedom to go work for those people. You don't want to be dependent on the paycheck. Absolutely. Right? So I'm, I'm, that's just how I feel. I see pros and cons to both sides. I was just curious what your take was um okay so i did mention earlier uh that we could come back to the topic of uh minimum like hours uh like not working the 70 to 80 hours a week uh and dialing it back to maybe 55 50 hours a week is that something you're trying to do yeah you know i think at this point in today's world that's kind of the norm and that's Mm -hmm. i think that's the target that that's my expectation with all of my salary managers is i expect at least a 50 hour work week Mm -hmm. i want to give them two days off um, and I want, and I'm a firm believer in people being happy in their personal lives. They're going to be happier in the work lives. How are you pulling that off? Uh, you know, just our, our staffing and scheduling and, uh, you know, and relying on, I think it, it, it this was a learned behavior for me because kind of coming from the school of, Hey, if you have to work seven days this week, work seven days. And if mm-hmm. that means you're working 80, 85 hours, then that's what you're working. So how is, as the owner, do you. Well, in the beginning, I I think I beat my managers to death. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I was fortunate to have an amazing uh, sous chef who then became the chef de cuisine uh, and was with me 14 years Mm -hmm. before he, in this past year, opened up his own restaurant here in Pittsburgh, who's still a great friend of mine. Um, But I had somebody that was also from that school of thought. So, you know, I had him to kind of fall back on and rely on. Um, but once he left, that kind of really ch- had a forced me to change my attitude and my mindset, and which, hey, not everyone is like Dave and I, um, you know, they want their personal lives. They, yeah. they, they don't, they aren't expecting to work 60 plus hours a week, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I think the comfort zone at this point is at 50 to 55 hours. Okay. You know, I am fortunate now to have a chef who, who, who still has that mentality of uh, I'll do whatever it needs and, and, and she's. Uh, more times than not putting in those 60 plus hours. Um, but I literally try to push her out the door and mm-hmm. say, Jamilka, go home, get out of here. Uh, you, awesome. need, you need some time off. Great chef. Uh, I want to make sure we leave time for the speed round and you got to take care of your guests. So we're going to take a break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back. Payroll and benefits, it's hard. Sometimes it feels like a foreign language, especially for small businesses. I mean, you, you're too busy running your business. You don't have time to be an expert in all things taxes and regulations. That's why there's Gusto. Gusto is making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses. Modern technology does the heavy lifting, so it's easy to get things right. PC Mag and Fit Small Business have called Gusto the best payroll for small businesses. Gusto will save you time. 72% of customers spend less than five minutes to run their payroll. Gusto is more efficient and reliable. Four out of five customers actually reduce payroll errors after switching to Gusto. People who succeed in this industry have access to systems and information, and Gusto will provide both. 
You no longer have to be a big company to get great technology, great benefits, and great service. To help support the show, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited-time deal. Sign up today and get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash unstoppable. G-U-S-T-O dot com slash unstoppable. Payroll and benefits, it's hard. Sometimes it feels like a foreign language, especially for small businesses. I mean, you, you're too busy running your business. You don't have time to be an expert in all things taxes and regulations. That's why there's Gusto. Gusto is making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses. Modern technology does the heavy lifting, so it's easy to get things right. PC Mag and Fit Small Business have called Gusto the best payroll for small businesses. Gusto will save you time. 72% of customers spend less than five minutes to run their payroll. Gusto is more efficient and reliable. Four out of five customers actually reduce payroll errors after switching to Gusto. People who succeed in this industry have access to systems and information, and Gusto will provide both. You no longer have to be a big company to get great technology, great benefits, and great service. To help support the show, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited-time deal. Sign up today and get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash unstoppable. G-U-S-T-O dot com slash unstoppable. And we're back. The first question I have for you, Chef, is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Hard work. Hard work. What is your biggest weakness? Uh, too many weaknesses. That's my <laughs> biggest weakness. No, spreading myself too thin. Okay. And uh, how long have you been aware of this? Oh, boy. Years. And what have you done over the years to be less weak at that? <laughs> uh, hiring in great managers that support my weaknesses. Okay. That I can rely on. So your weaknesses are spreading yourself too thin. What other weaknesses are you re- hiring for? What, what, what do Does you that mean? Does that make sense? Like, well, your weakness was spreading yourself too thin, and you hired to compensate for your weakness. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm empowering and I'm trusting in great managers to kind of run the operation okay. so I don't feel the need to have to be at every restaurant gotcha. all the time. Gotcha. Uh, what's one question or thing you look for when you're hiring those new managers to help you not spread yourself so thin? What's one question I have for them? Yeah, or, or what do I look you're looking for? for yeah. um, I think ultimately I look for people persons if, if that's correct english people persons people persons take it. yeah <laughs> uh, and is there any particular uh quality uh, or just if they're, if they're sociable yeah if they're sociable and you know of course i do look at their resume i want to yeah. see where they come from but i i, I also when talking with them i want to see um uh how how willing they are to kind of adapt and to learn and grow with me um what their end objective is in the career um, and then I, you know, I think I get a pretty good sense of a person in interviewing with them within, you know, 10, 15 minutes of talking with them. Great. Uh, what's your biggest challenge today? Uh, good help. Good hourly help, probably. And what have you done differently to combat that challenge? Oh, boy. I, I'm still combating it. Mm-hmm. I, I have not uh, gotten out on the other side of it. Mm-hmm. I think this has been a, kind of what we talked about earlier. It's been an ongoing issue of. A lack of, of qualified good help. 
I wish I had the answer too, man. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a very common challenge. Uh, so you're not alone, but I think you already know that. Uh, share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. I'm talking about core values, a way to be. What are, what are be, you? Be nice. Be nice. Be nice. Remember, you're in the hospitality business. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that in pre- our pre shifts, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly just kind of beating that drum is be nice. Mm. What's one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? So it's uncommon to the industry, but it's standard within your restaurants. Boy, that's a good question. I don't know if I have an answer to that. <laughs> we can come back to it. Yeah, maybe. Want. Let's pass on that one. Right. Uh, share an online resource or tool. This could be well, like social a, media. Social media. Yeah, Which I mean, that, that drives. I mean, my my fallback to is just out of boredom i'll scroll facebook but mm-hmm. it's really i think the movement is going towards instagram you okay. know it was twitter what's one practice you're doing with instagram that uh is helping? H- hiring good social media managers <laughs> <laughs> to make me look a lot more interesting nice. than what i am so when you're are you when you're hiring managers are you looking for that quality of being a good social media person well, I actually have a specific social media manager nice. um, that kind of handles all of the different social media platforms okay. for all of the restaurants. What's that role look like? Do they just follow you around the camera? No, they, they kind of go and they have their own schedules okay. and they know the expectation of how many times we want them into restaurants, okay. meeting with each restaurant's managers, um, you know, a couple times a week, getting content, yep. um, developing that uh, specific restaurant brand and voice okay. so it's not vanilla across the board that each restaurant it there's the continuity of the concept and the style of restaurant with the voice that we're throwing out on social media now is this an in-house and which is, person which is far beyond what my capabilities are you so know, I, I, at, the, at, at the core i'm a cook and and i'm not very technically savvy okay. and i and i know that and i'm surely not interesting enough to constantly <laughs> post uh, throughout the day of uh, on, on social media, so that's why we we felt the need. So and I, I think the business is so millennial driven, um, as far as in a customer standpoint, that uh, you know they're all on their handheld devices. So it was kind of hiring somebody that could speak their language and yeah. kind of tap into to to what they want to see and read and the pictures they want to look at. So is this something that's on your payroll or are they okay, yeah. so they're in-house. That's cool. Uh, I'd be interested to learn more about that, but we only have so much time. Uh what's one book we must read that will make us a better person or restaurant operator? You can't I don't say know it's saying the table. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm see I'm an old school guy yeah. so mine would probably be Kitchen Confidential even okay. though even though it's outdated at this point in time. What's and one, I know you know Bourdain doesn't even like to talk about the book anymore it's so old so <laughs> what's one lesson from that book you picked up? Uh just the the raw truths of the of the business mm-hmm. and and thankfully I think that culture is is going extinct for, once for, true for, for good reason so yeah. yeah for good reason <laughs> but that was very much uh in the world of the restaurant business yeah. that i grew up in cool uh what is one piece of technology you've adopted in your restaurants that's had an influence in operations i'm talking the pos systems scheduling tools reservation tools what's one thing that's really yeah the, the ipad it yep. seems like all pos and reservation systems even open table you know it's funny because we were uh kind of toying with the idea of moving away from open table and, and were you them at? not having uh, it was a different system called reserve and yep. it was all kind of iPad and, and handheld, you know, smartphone based. Mm-hmm. And when we approached open table about uh, terminating our contract, 
uh, they presented us, they have their own version of the iPad kind of system. Okay. So I think all of uh, our POS systems and everything is all, all moving towards uh So I noticed you're, a, you're using the, micros the now. Correct. Is there a reason why you're sticking with micros, even though that's not... It's too expensive to switch out of it at this point <laughs> with, with seven restaurants. Yeah. Uh, you know, and we've gotten quotes in yeah. uh, different POS systems, but it would cost us an arm and a leg to, mm. to switch out. So Interesting. Cool. Uh, if you could switch, which one would you go to? Uh, good question. Uh, maybe Squirrel. I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure. I can, uh, we can talk after. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> what is one piece of... Oh, I just asked this question. I'm all over the place. This is the last question, Chef. It's a good one, so get ready for it. You listening? Yep. All right. If you got the news that you'd be leaving this world tomorrow and all the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you can leave behind for the good of humanity and the industry, what would it be? Or what would they be? Cook, cook with heart and soul. Be nice. Work hard. Cook with heart and soul. Be nice. Work hard. Awesome, chef. Uh, you've been such an incredible guest. We wrap up every episode by calling somebody out. So who is one independent restaurant operator? Somebody you admire in this industry? Somebody you think would be a great guest on the show? Uh, who, who are they? Uh, well, I think you said you had a good lineup of Pittsburgh chefs, except for <laughs> Rick DeChance, right? Which, yeah. Uh, you know, Rick's a buddy of mine, so okay. I'd be calling him out to answer his his text messages or nice. emails or whatever he's not answering from you and, and to, to get on the microphone here. <laughs> Look out, Rick. I'm coming after you, man. Uh, again. <laughs> uh, and the, the last thing I need from you is if we want to come join your team, if we're listening to this and we liked what you had to share, we want to come learn under you, or maybe somebody has a question about the advice you gave, uh, what's the best way to connect? Uh, just to log on to one of our, uh, you know, you can go to sprestaurantgroup.com. Um, you can log on to any of the restaurants that has my email. Contact me via email. Um, and if you come into the restaurant, come with an open mind and uh, be ready to, to work hard and to, to learn. Beautiful. Episode 432. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 432 for a summary of today's conversation with a link back to everything we talked about. Chef. Brian, thank you so much for taking yeah, the time. It was fun. Thanks for having uh, me. You were a great guest. There is no questioning, my man. You are unstoppable. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Cheers. Boom. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. And what a great conversation with Chef Brian Pekarsik. I think the big lessons for me in this this conversation uh, were uh, being willing to take a step back or uh, take a demotion if it meant joining a, a better team. Uh, because you'll go further with that reputation and uh, you're, you're going to get pushed harder being surrounded by a team that has higher standards and you're, you're forming yourself. You're, you're molding yourself at this point and all those habits, all those skills, you're going to learn uh, the the being able to, to, to tie your name to other restaurants is so valuable, uh, so much more valuable than a few dollars an hour you might be making right now in this moment. So really project into the future and uh, see the big picture. Um, I love how we mentioned that uh, just setting the standard you, you expect your team to give you. Uh, your team will never work harder than you work. So if you want them to work hard for you, uh, work for hard for them, set that standard. Uh, and I think the other great uh, piece from this conversation was the idea of getting that experience, getting that knowledge, getting the expertise, uh, that reputation, tying your personal brand to the brand of great restaurants and then how that can uh, convert into leveraging power 
when it's time to uh, find a future partner, right? So, and even beyond that, when, when you find that future partner, uh, take your time to get to know this future partner. Uh, don't rush into things. Make sure that you have the same vision and that your partner is the right partner and you're pulling in the right direction, in the same direction. So, so important. So that's all for now, guys. Uh, thank you so much for sticking around this long. And like always, please do shoot me an email, eric at restaurantunstoppable.com. If you can think of somebody I should be getting on the show uh, or a subject you want me to cover, I'll, I'll get an expert on the show. Keep those five-star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio coming. They help so much. Uh, the best way to support the show, guys, really is just through sharing it. If you found value in today's episode, share it right now. Go ahead. If you're on your smartphone, when you're whatever app you're using to listen to this, take a screenshot and share it on Instagram and tag Restaurant Unstoppable or Eric Cacciatore on Instagram and I will be sure to thank you. And uh, That's all for now. I love you all so much, guys. Thanks for sticking around this long. I think I said that twice now, but <laughs> until next time, peace out.